Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome all, Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, episode 246 Friday, June the 17th, 2022, and welcome back to Mark and Brendan Alive, recording as opposed from last week, which was one we threw in because we couldn't coordinate our recording, so we had put in one of our pre-recorded ones, but we're back here semi-live, depending on what time you listen to this, and uh, we're ready to go, Mark, and... Yeah, you. we were talking off air, catching up a little bit, and you said, how's things, how's work? Well, work's playing away, Mark. Um, some interesting cases this week. Um, there has been a little bit of a, a general flow, I think, here in Australia over the last couple of months by the sound of it that, that um, the craziness has settled down and um, even some clinics are, are saying they're experiencing a bit of a lull, Mark, a bit of a slow period. So... I would be interested to see or, or hear from any listeners anywhere in the world who are having a bit of a slowdown with the caseload that they have in their clinics, Mark. So send an email to us, vetgurus at gmail.com, and we haven't given out our general details for a couple of weeks. So head to vetgurus.com, and that's where you can find all the episodes and links to all the previous 245 episodes and there's a little search button there you can search on a particular topic that might interest you say birds or reptiles or snakes or rats or or whatever or dad jokes you never know what might come up there mark (laughs) and uh head over there and also um flick around our little website and Maybe think about giving us a little donation to help cover our production costs. Go to our, our little Vet Gurus store or our, on Etsy, uh, which there's a link at vetgurus.com, or even perhaps throw us a, a dollar or so at our Patreon site. That would be fantastic, Mark. So, yeah, that's what's been happening. Um, some interesting cases, some sort of a bit up in the air, Mark, so I won't sort of talk about um, um, specifics with cases at the moment. So, yeah, things did slow down a little bit from the craziness, but we're, we're steady-ish um, still. So I think you'd predicted on a previous podcast probably – 10, 10 to 20 podcasts ago, Mark, that you thought the craziness would would um, taper off once uh, COVID issues sort of settle a little bit. So I think your prediction is coming true, Mark. I'll take credit for it whether I said it or not. Brendan. Listen, <laughs> tell me, um, uh, we're coming up. Do we have any plans for the big 250? Yes, well, we need to, don't we? Two, 246, yes, we will. Uh, we'll think of something probably. <laughs> half an hour before we start recording as <laughs> usual, but we'll have a bit of a 250th special uh, and I think we might wait till episode 300 before we give away a prize pack again. They have been popular, uh, those our posters and, and prints and various, various sponsored gifts um, during our 200th and our 150th and our 100th mark 
and I think we may have done it for our 50th as well, but we might delay it to the 300th this, this time, but we'll do something. Yeah, we will do something, um, even if it's just do a slightly different podcast for that number 250 mark. Um, mark, 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 mark. A 250 mark, mark. And <laughs> I have a slight review the there, transcript. Mark. Did you see... Did you see the agenda? Um, yes, I, I think we should mention something about that. We, Our podcast is automatically converted to a transcript by an AI, and it's quite amusing, isn't it? It's um, hilarious. It, it um, sometimes gets it spot on, and sometimes it's so far off you think, what the hell did I just say <laughs> half an hour ago? Because it. Perhaps it doesn't manage to interpret our Aussie accents that well, Mark, or our enunciation isn't quite correct. So I think yeah. there's two things about that, Brendan. The first one is that I, when you first started sending them to me, I was so embarrassed that I, I struggled to read them. But I think reading them highlights the flaws in my spoken word with all the ums and ahs um and hopefully i know i still do it but hopefully i do it a little bit less and the other thing is that um i think the ai is learning our speech because it's definitely getting more and more accurate even though it still comes up with some bloody hilarious clangers Yes, and it will soon become self-aware and it will realise that our podcast <laughs> is a load of crap <laughs> and, and it will um, stop transcribing. So uh, that, that may not be too far into the future, Mark. Um, well, let's jump into things. I have a very quick non-veterinary-related review. As you see in the slot, short agenda I sent you there, Mark, and it says book. Um, I've just started... Uh, the process of reading or rereading the three-volume collector's edition, the original, and I've got it right in front of me here. It's a quite a, a, a big tome, Mark, the original and complete illustrated strand version of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, wow. Arthur Conan Doyle. So I've um, just about finished the second of his very early novel, uh, um cases there and gee the first one was quite interesting it went off on a really weird tangent and it's certainly not like the classic Sherlock Holmes tales that um, he's famous for with Arthur Conan Doyle um, have you read any of the market any no I have not yeah they're quite they're interesting you know the whole method of deductive reasoning and you know um, uh, picking apart the case cases and the mysteries there so yes yeah, so I managed to score the, the actual paperback or hardback version. And so the actual, um, well, having said that, at the moment I'm reading it on my Kindle, <laughs> um, which I downloaded as well. But I'm, I plan to transfer over to reading the actual paper version that I bought off eBay um, a, a few weeks ago for a bargain price. I couldn't say no to it, Mark, and it does have all the original illustrations that were um, produced as part of the original publication in the Strand magazine in uh, London during 1890s or so, I think it was, or the early 1910, up to 1910, 1920 or so. So I'm enjoying it, Mark. So I've got a long way to go. Um, there's a hell of, there's three volumes and I'm just 
cracked open volume one so who knows when i'll finish it mark it might end up on the pile of other books that i've got stuck into and then (laughs) there's nothing wrong down i reckon the best bedside table has a pile of books on it that are need to be finished so I think it's all good, Brendan. Brendan, and I, fi- yeah, I find them very relaxing reading these, and the way he sort of reasons out the cases. Uh, although even from case one, it's quite interesting with with it's all it, that they're all written by the from the perspective of Watson, so Holmes and Watson, and Watson is the narrator, and even with the very first prelude or the very first episode of Sherlock Holmes. Um, He's a little bit worried about Sherlock. He sort of seems to be spaced out and looking off into the distance and he introduces the fact very early on that Sherlock's addicted to cocaine and to heroin. Um, so it's it's very interesting um, because there's lots of sort of variations on the TV series that um, have been produced with Sherlock Holmes that um, delve a bit deep, deeper into his addictions, Mark. Um, so, yes, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. So that's my non-veterinary review which I've only just started, but I'm enjoying it very much. The original and complete illustrated Sherlock Holmes, Mark. Now, Brendan, I'm a bit disappointed. Uh, In fact, well, by your first news story, it's a bit of a downer. Well, it's actually an updated one, Mark. I I had the previous um, report on this all keyed up and ready to go, and then I received the email update today so uh about this i had to change the actual link to this yeah it's about happy who's not so happy happy the elephant um which is situated in the bronx zoo in in new york um happy's been in captivity for more than 40 years and there was a court case mark Um, a vote of five to two the court of appeals rejected the Animal Advocacy's organisation's argument that Happy was being illegally detained at the zoo because they um, their case was on the legal principle as habeas corpus, which people are allowed to protect their bodily liberty. And they were disputing that, um, or they were um, arguing that Happy was a person, Mark. Um, Happy has... Um, and, and therefore would be unlawfully restrained. Um, interestingly enough, two of the judges sort of um, agreed, and but but the majority dissented, um, five to two, as I said at the start there, um, and happy. So the aim was to, part of a campaign, Mark, um, by a non-human rights group ad- advocacy um, in a long-running legal push to free happy. That's so that's saying that he need, happy needs to be free. Happy needs to be happy, and that they wanted to move happy away from the Bronx Zoo, saying it was a prison for her, and to move her to one to an actual much larger elephant sanctuary where she could spend the rest of her days um, happy. Mark um, and a few of the quotes here yeah, they are a little bit depressing one of the quotes is exactly that she's depressed screwed up elephant said the group's founder there so um, and that she was being exploited uh, so it's a yeah it's it's i suppose it's one way of trying to and i know that the, i think the good thing is Mark, a, a lot of um zoos and um have been phasing out um keeping uh, elephants in their zoos and um if 
the last elephants die or um, for whatever reason that there's not replacing them and I think that's a good thing because I, I think they should be in you know these um, wildlife sanctuaries rather than zoos because they, they seem to certainly in my opinion suffer from um, anxiety and all sorts of behavioral issues in zoos um, but they were just using it as a you know a, a, a court appeal to try and um, make sure that um, to try and get happy out of there, Mark, and make happy happy. So I suppose there's two questions that I pose to you, Mark. Um, what did you think about their, their approach to that legal case and what is your general thought about what may happen with happy? Well, I, I like in general the direction, the drift we're travelling as, uh, you know, socially in the world to being more careful of the well-being of animals. Um, and I think an argument, a, le a legal argument like this that um, places the onus of uh, a, a good life on the people that hold the animal is a good thing. I think it's inevitable, though, that we get to a point, as we say, we can't keep elephants. You know, Happy's er uh, the early part of Happy's life was being dressed up and playing tug of war with football teams and and uh, circus performing more or less. And as we move away from that, there are going to be leftover animals, uh, stranded animals uh, who are psychologically damaged beyond repair. They can never be repatriated. Um, and it does beg the question, what happens to those animals? And, and I don't know. Do you leave them in the jail that they've spent their whole life in? Because will it stress them more to... And Happy has a record of not being very happy with some other elephants. Uh, happy was involved in the goring of a... In a small social group, the goring of one of the other members of the social group that ended up killing that elephant. So, I don't know. I don't know, Brendan. I, I, I look forward to the day when there is no longer any constrained happiness yes and uh, and uh, one of the other ironic things about this article is that happy was acquired initially with probably from thailand they think with another one which they named grumpy um, so one one of them was called happy one was called grumpy and they two they lived initially with an older elephant um, originally, um, yeah. I think when so, they were when they were originally imported, there were seven of them, uh, yes, eight, right. and they were the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Names were applied to them unimaginably. Well, one was called Tuss. One was called Tuss. Um, that might have been one added to the group later. Yeah. Yes. So there we go. Um, that's my story, Mark. It's a bit of a um, yeah. It's a bit of a bittersweet one, but happy is well. Perhaps still Happy should have been renamed Grumpy and let's hope Happy eventually gets out to that um, conservation region, I think. Um, and I did I find love, it go on. Fasc uh, fascinating some of the, you know, the, the, the judges' opinions, you know, five to two. Um, uh, but I think the general thoughts was them that um, – where are we? There we go. I like the, the comment, this court agrees that happy is more than just a legal thing or property. She wrote, it is an intelligent, autonomous being which should be treated with respect and dignity 
and who may be entitled to liberty. And that was the whole case that that yeah. she was entitled to to liberty and that should should be released. Um, but the other thing though about that is that I think they were largely trying to get some sort of precedent set. I don't know the yes. consequences would have been that significant for happy, but might have made a lot of other animals happy. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And bloody hell, from the I, I know we have some people who listen to us in the US, and I don't mean to be judgmental. We're not sitting on any high horse of moral authority here in Australia. Um, but it does seem to be a very confrontational, oppositional you know, there's the, the people on one side who think happy should be free, absolute liberty, and then the people on the other side who think everything's perfectly fine. There's sort of no grey in the middle in America in so many issues at the moment, and uh, happy's issue is just another one. Yes, and you might end up just butting your head against something. Oh, I think you've nice got something segue. to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I have always loved musk ox um, and uh, scientists, well, I'll leave the introduction to the article to the end because it's so succinct, but um, observations were made in the journal Acta Neuropathologica that suggested the bell ringing clashes that musk ox perform as part of their sort of argument between each other where they headbutt hugely from, you know, rear up on both back legs and smack their heads into each other. Um, the pathology associated with it um, has for the first time been assessed. And um, and for a while, we thought that uh, musk oxen brains could withstand these merciless pounding forces without significant injury, they, that somehow their brains were magically protected and perfect. But now someone has checked and they find that um, musk ox end up with exactly the same injury that uh, NFL footballers get, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, a disorder known to be caused by repetitive head hits. Um, in the musk ox, a form of protein called tau had accumulated in patterns that suggested brain bashing was specifically to blame. Um, in an unexpected twist, and I know this tickled your fancy, Brendan, <laughs> the brains of female musk oxen who hit heads less frequently than males were worse off than the males as far as uh, evidence of brain injury was concerned. So it was thought that the male body with its much heavier skull, stronger neck muscles and forehead fat pads, Geez, I've got a few of those. May cushion the brain blows to the brain. The researchers, yes, um, yes. So just the, those males have thick heads, Mark. Yes, a little damage may be, may be okay. The scientists suspect for musk, musk ox, since their daily lives are not super complicated. <laughs> I love that summary. Are you trying to draw a comparison to some of those sporting um, codes, Mark? No, no. This is no. I wouldn't do such a thing, Brendan. And is that another journal that you um, read avidly, Mark? Acta Neuropathologica. Can't wait till it's delivered. Yes, covering all aspects of neuropathology. It's a bit of a light read. Do you read that when you're sat in the bath? Do you um, at night and you're winding down? Well, I've got to be careful when I read it because it's on the iPad, and I don't want to get electrocuted. <laughs> Interesting story, Mark. Very interesting story. And 
it's certainly something that we're starting to investigate a bit more, aren't we, here in Australia with our major football codes, the Australian Football League, the AFL and also um, rugby of the various various um, codes here, Mark, and uh, they've been a little bit proactive, aren't they, the codes with, with um, concussion rules, etc. cetera, with, with taking people off in the AFL especially, and they have if, if they've had some sort of head knock during play, they're, they're taken to the sideline and they have to undergo a concussion te- test, and if they fail that, they're, they're not only out for the rest of that match, but they're out for at least one week, um, and I presume they do further testing of them as well, but... Yeah, it is a bit of a worry, isn't it? The old concussive injuries, Mark, which getting on a bit of a high horse here. I've, I've never understood, and we might get some hate mail here, Mark. I've <laughs> never understood um, the whole process of boxing, um, the sport, so-called sport of boxing, and, and why it's still so popular, Mark, um, that, that in our day and age that um, supposedly... Um, humans with a, a decent um, brain capacity, um, we decide that standing two people together and to belt the crap out of each other, even with gloves on, is is regarded as a sport. Uh, yeah, so it's yeah, a, it's, we'll we'll have a discussion about it sometime. But I'm surprised how often my YouTube channel throws up MMA fights as a likely thing I'd be interested in watching. So uh, I, I understand you're a dark what you're saying. Mark, I tell you what. <laughs> Uh, last time he gave me a roundhouse kick, it, I was out for <laughs> out for a half an hour. <laughs> okay, let's jump into our news story, Mark. Um, well, sorry, our main, our main topic, topic this main week, topic. which was going to be a we're going to do it like a half an hour quick little podcast this week. But we've already gone for twenty one minutes already. So our main topic this week is a bit of an overview of skin diseases in snakes, Mark, and. Just for our listeners who are not regular listeners or, or subscribers, we did cover one of the possible causes of, of skin issues that we see in snakes, and that's um, skin um, shedding problems. So dysectysis was covered in episode 233, and that's what we did as the whole main topic for that. So um, I'd point you towards that if you haven't listened to it already, 233. Have we done um, snake mites? Was that another one? Yeah, we have, and I haven't. Yeah. I didn't get to the point of actually looking that one up. So, so yeah, we're going to talk about some of the skates, other snake skin diseases or, or skin problems that we see. And yeah, the list we have there is dissectitis or or shedding problems. And briefly, we'll we'll just say that yeah, see episode two hundred and thirty three with that, and there's <laughs> various causes and, and reasons why we get the abnormal shed in there. Um, vast majority uh, related to environmental um, conditions, humidity and hygiene, etc. with them. And then the, the other one that where we see snake skin diseases, and sometimes we have multiple of these problems going on at once, don't we, Mark, is the mites, as you mentioned, and we do have an, a link to the mite episode, which I will have post this production, so it'll be up by the time this this um, episode is out, Mark, if you go to our website, and you'll have a direct link to whatever episode that was because I forgot to look that one up. So <laughs> let's chat about some of the other causes of and, and presentations of skin diseases or problems in snakes. Mark, do you want to kick off with the next one? Well, the next one is, uh, you, we call it dermatoseptosemia, and um, it's a, a condition um, many people might uh, see it 
brought in um, where people think the snake's been burnt somehow and it's developed a series of um, of uh, blisters and changes to often the ventral surface um, and um, and yeah it's a it's not as it initially it, snakes definitely can be burned and they can have that appearance and um, it's one of the reasons we're cautious about substrate based uh, sources of of uh, thermal support for the animals um, but those burns seem in my experience to be far less common than uh, than um, uh, dermatoseptosemia or is it sometimes called blister disease Brendan yes that's another common a common sort of term for it there yes um, so it's basically infected skin isn't it that's what we're talking about um, or more if we, by definition, if we're saying septicemia, then we've got a generalised um, infection there going on there. And we always, and your great point in that burns and reptiles tend to go together, don't they, a lot, unfortunately. And uh, we do spend a lot of time chatting to our clients about correct setup of their vivarium for their snakes, if we stick to snakes, um, and making sure that uh, we try and limit the access to those you know, heating pads and that they're selecting correct sort of heating elements um, in their enclosure and making sure if they, you know, at the bare minimum they have cages around them. But unfortunately, even where, where they do have the cages, Mark, we do still see, don't we, that for some reason some snakes decide they want to coil around the actual cage that's protecting that light um, and they get a burn off the cage um, that's surrounding that as well. So, And that's where they need to look a little bit deeper about what is the temperature gradient of that enclosure and that encourages the snake to try and get a little bit warmer by getting very close to that um, heating element. How, what do you think about um, the, those uh, dermatoseptosemia cases? The, I think the, that's a great word to describe these cases because it reminds us constantly that we have to look at the 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 entirety of the animal's physiology. What we can see on the outside in these cases is often just the tip of the iceberg. And we do need to um, take all the steps appropriate, whether that be blood tests or uh, culture and sensitivity. Um, a more extensive examination of these animals is regularly required because what we see on the outside is just the tip of the iceberg. Yes, and it's given us a bit of a hint that, you know, something drastic might be going wrong with this snake and we've got what looks like a, a severe skin problem there. Start thinking immediately, hey, um, you know, what's wrong with the immune system of this snake or does it have a septicemia going on? What other organ dysfunction do we have in this animal? And for those, those snakes that have pretty obvious marked skin issues going on there, then, yeah, I'd, I'd be pushing very strongly to the client that we need to suck some blood from that snake and and determine whether or not it does have a, a more serious um, condition going on than just a localised skin issue with them. Um, it's I mean, it's an interesting... Yeah, go you ahead. Go. Yep. No, you go. No, you go. Um, no, you well, go. <laughs> doing the culture, as you mentioned, is, is, is um, critical with a lot of these, Mark, um, or at least encouraging the client to do a culture. <laughs> even though you may get a fair percentage of them saying no and just wanting to go with, you know, the generic broad-spectrum antibiotic plus or minus topical treatments with them. But if we can do a culture and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's surprising that the ones that you think is a standard sort of 
infection, bacterial infection, that, that might be the one that surprises you and comes back with some weird and wonderful bacterium that's resistant to the antibiotics that you have commonly on your shelf in the clinic. I've, I've seen that happen, Brendan, and I would put it out there as a genuine reason to insist as much as possible that uh, culture's done. I was interested to ask you, those cultures, I, I have found that doing blood cultures seems to be the most useful clinical um, test where I think there's a septicemia. Um, taking samples from the lesions on the skin, even though that's often the reason that people bring the animal in, um, blood cultures tend to give me much more useful information. Now, we're doing a very short podcast here, Mark, but I want you to quickly talk about your process of taking that blood in order <laughs> to get the culture. Do you want to quickly run through that? Yes, I do. I do. Um, I generally access the the um, ventral coccygeal vein um, is the general place I get it, but it's probably one of the situations. I'm a bit of a weenie when it comes to blood collection, and I tend to, in most instances, avoid uh, cardiac puncture. Um, but this is one of those situations where I would be tempted. I absolutely feel it's important to get a great sample uncontaminated by lymph or other tissues. And so in these situations, I might ultrasound the heart and use a, 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 um, a needle in the anaesthetized animal to gain some uh, um, a decent blood sample to uh, provide a decent blood culture. We do have um, meat broth uh, culture medium. They, they need to be replaced regularly. They go out of date much quicker than most of the other culture media. Um, and they, while they, those pediatric meat broth cultures require a significant amount of blood, um, uh, they're 20 mil samples and they require a mill of blood, they usually require a mill of blood, you can get effective results with lesser volumes. So if you have a large python, a mill of blood from the heart is a reasonable uh, collection tactic. Um, but um, if you get less, I would still use it. It just will often take longer before the culture results come in, Brendan. Excellent thoughts and advice, Mark. Let's jump on to the ne next skin issue we see in them and that's fungal infections with snakes and yeah where do we start with this one mark um well it's interesting culture? it's really <laughs> interesting it's it's it is like we're trying to do it quick so but it's interesting how this is becoming more and more of a of an issue uh it's a growing problem when i first graduated i would very very rarely see fungal diseases in captive snakes they were almost universally bacterial problems and required workup. They, you know, they were complicated by the viral diseases, but uh, we would very rarely see a fungal problem. Whereas I think just over the last six or seven years, that's increasingly been the case, that we see more and more cases which we can uh, take appropriate samples um, and, uh, and culture um, a variety of dermatophytes. And... Mixed infections, so fungal and, and bacterial, I think, are, are not uncommon with them as well. So, Which does 
make you think it's worth that, um, you know, that uh, biopsy because uh, any time that you have those mixed infections, getting a picture of what's actually in the tissue can give you much more guidance than maybe some of the culture results even. Yes, and and or if it is not responding to that initial, you know, first choice treatment, which may be topical and or systemic and it's not responding, you think, what the hell's going on here? Then, yeah, jump in and take a little section of that skin and send it off and or do the biopsy uh, culture if you haven't already and uh, you're likely to increase the chances of finding an answer to it because there is another group which is a which is i think rare mark but um, i like your comment on it that um, we can have these some of these generalized pretty horrible looking snake skin issues that are a viral cause mark what do you want to talk about say about that well, I think we do focus on those respiratory viruses, the life-threatening respiratory viruses that um, that uh, knock a lot of our captive carpet python and carpet python calamos on the head pretty quickly. Um, they, there definitely is, uh, whether it's directly associated with the viral infection or there's some immune suppression associated with that infection that in turn leads to uh, dermatologic symptoms, uh, clinical signs. We definitely see, uh, particularly I suppose as we see more and more of these um, snakes and more of uh, different species, the, uh, not just typically the, the archetypal carpet python, we are seeing more ca uh, snakes present um, either both with respiratory and dermatologic signs, um, but maybe some of them are just presenting, you know, I wouldn't rule out a viral testing a snake that uh, just presented with dermatologic disease that was uh, unresolving. Cases where we've had um, two and three cultures with varying um, what, what we subsequently suspect to be opportunistic pathogens, uh, finally we do a, a Cult, uh, a, a viral test and turns out the snake was suffering uh, from one of those immunosuppressive viruses. Yes, and you did touch on one of the other sort of syndromes, and which is the reason why I selected this particular topic, Mark, and that's the skin problems that we see in all these um, crossbred and, and morphs and, you know, um, what I call sports. Uh, species that shouldn't be bred um, <laughs> so again we might get some hate mail here so all these fancy colors and and fluorescent snakes and 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 different you know albino snakes etc um that are the the craze for the last 10 years or so um, i did have one of these in which the the clients were absolutely devastated that a new client that i saw um fairly recently and it was a <laughs> A, a young morph snake that had that really horrible skin that almost tears apart um, and just gently came in for that they, they thought it was a dissectiasis, slightly abnormal shed, which it did have, but 
just gently rubbing the skin and it was virtually skinning the snake, um, oh. Mark. And, and I'm sure you've had those young young snakes that have that. And uh, when just gent- gently rubbing or, 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 or touching the snake, it was the whole skin was coming away in, in, in patches and we ended up having to euthanize the, the snake because it was just such a mess. And I, I'd be strongly... I strongly suggested to the client that it was probably related to the the breeding of this particular individual there. Um, yeah, be, so, it'd be interesting sure. to get more research done. I reckon because there are there is a syndrome the the ball pythons, which we don't see very many of here in Australia, but um, I think they colloquially call it banana skin disease, where the snake gets traumatized and literally crawls like not just out of its shed skin, but its whole skin. Um, and I have seen one, um, uh, uh, one. Uh, it was a python from New Guinea um, that had a very similar condition where it was, uh, and so it would be interesting to know whether it was, you know, a lot of those ball pythons do are bred uh, for particular colour patterns. And it would yes. be interesting to know if there is a genetic component to those um, uh uh, avulsing skin diseases. And I think some of these, Mark, are, and, and our good friend Robert Johnson calls them slippery skin disease with these um, ones where it describes has, it very well. He, he has all the, the good skin, names. Skin comes off, and I've certainly seen it in some carpet pythons, I think. Um, and I, 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 my, my thought is that we might have something similar to that Ehlers Dan Danlos syndrome, you know, um, yeah, an ab- abnormal um, abnormal um, connective tissue um, beneath there. So a you know genetic connective tissue disorder basically going on there, and yeah, it probably tied back to to breeding, I expect. So I should have done some pathology on that mark some biopsies on those ones here yeah. but they they are dramatic and i know and i and i think those those end stage dermatoseptosemia type cases as well tend to have that um um i'd be interested in your thoughts where you know just the whole whole skin of that animal um breaks down so that whole organ is is stuffed you know, it's a technical yeah, term. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that the distinction you can make is that those, if you, and I think you're, that, that's a very insightful comment, the uh, snake Erlos Dan, Dana syndrome. Um, I think those ones are often otherwise looking healthy. The, those snakes will just lose their skin, uh, as you said, maybe some inherited connective tissue defect. Um, but the snakes that lose their skin when they're suffering from severe dermatoseptosemia, they they're deathly sick snakes, um, and uh, and I think you can generally distinguish between those two sort of classes of snakes. Yes, absolutely. Ha- well, if someone comes in, Brendan, you're about to cut me off, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay. I was just going to say, um, when someone comes in, they, you and I have the same problem that sometimes people come in, we make a whole bunch of recommendations about blood tests and biopsies, and the client looks at us blankly um, and absorbs none of it, like a duck being splashed with water, and then just goes, okay, wh- how are we going to treat this now? Um, 
do you have some sort of like generic standard skin treatments that you might choose to give to one of those clients b- before they become convinced they've got to go for further workup? <clears throat> yes. Well, it's probably a combination of topical and systemic is probably the um, general general answer there. So um, broad-spectrum antibiotics systemically and also topical treatments and, and husbandry. Um, so the third part of that, the husband, husbandry bit is doing a full clean of the enclosure, going back to something very simple like you know, paper towel or newspapers and changing that every day So um, as a substrate. And topically, if it's not involved in a huge area of the, the snake, it would be using products like flamazine ointment um, and plus or minus bandaging sometimes if it's, if it's very localised. Um, what, about, what about yourself, Mark? Oh, almost unsurprisingly, almost identical. Um, the I tend to use flamazine in those cases. Flamazine's a human um, sulfur, silver, silver, uh, sulfur diazine or something. Yes. Yep. Um, and it was developed uh, as a burn treatment, and it has yes. a very specific action against you know the common pathogens, Pseudomonas and Eremonas, that might. Uh, be contributing to burns, uh, pseudomonas in burns, but aeromonas in our reptiles. Um, and so I use that very, very frequently. But I'm also uh, not averse to using some of the F10 products. Just to give a quick shout out to one of our podcast sponsors. Um, and I don't do it just because they are a sponsor. I do it because those products really work in those circumstances. And there are um, uh, spray, both sprays and creams that we would use depending on the area and the ability of the client to get them applied Uh, but they're excellent cutaneous antiseptics i reckon as well brendan yes good point mark and i do use those Um, probably not as frequent as i should but yes Um, we should talk about topical treatments for reptiles in another podcast mark because i think our time is up and uh I'm off to get a skinful and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.